This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Chris the Girl. Mall Flanders by Daniel Defoe, Section 17. With all these fine compliments we parted, and I came merry enough to London, and found my governess as well pleased as I was. And now she told me she would never recommend any partner to me again, for she always found, she said, that I had the best luck when I ventured by myself. And so indeed I had, for I was seldom in any danger when I was by myself, or if I was, I got out of it with more dexterity than when I was entangled with the dull measures of other people, who had perhaps less forecast and were more rash and impatient than I. For though I had as much courage to venture as any of them, yet I used more caution before I undertook a thing, and had more presence of mind when I was to bring myself off. I have often wondered, even at my own hardiness, another way, that when all my companions were surprised and fell so suddenly into the hands of justice, and that I so narrowly escaped, yet I could not all this while enter into one serious resolution to leave off this trade, and especially considering that I was now very far from being poor. But the temptation of necessity, which is generally the introduction of all such wickedness, was now removed, for I had near five hundred pounds by me in ready money, on which I might have lived very well if I had thought fit to have retired. But I say I had not so much as the least inclination to leave off. No, not so much as I had before when I had but two hundred pounds beforehand, and when I had no such frightful examples before my eyes as these were. From hence tis evident to me that when once we are hardened in crime, no fear can affect us, no example give us any warning. I had indeed one comrade whose fate went very near me for a good while, though I wore it off too in time. That case was indeed very unhappy. I had made a prize of a piece of very good damask in a mercer's shop, and went clear off myself, but had conveyed the piece to this companion of mine, when we went out of the shop, and she went one way, and I went another. We had not been long out of the shop, but the mercer missed his piece of stuff, and sent his messengers one one way, and one another, and they presently seized her that had the piece with the damask upon her. As for me, I had very luckily stepped into a house where there was a lace chamber up one pair of stairs, and had the satisfaction, or the terror, indeed, of looking out of the window upon the noise they made, and seeing the poor creature dragged away in triumph to the justice, who immediately committed her to Newgate. I was careful to attempt nothing in the lace chamber, but tumbled their goods pretty much to spend time then bought a few yards of edging, and paid for it, and came away very sad-hearted indeed for the poor woman, who was in tribulation for what I only had stolen. Here again my old caution stood me in good stead, namely, that though I often robbed with these people, yet I never let them know who I was, or where I lodged, nor could they ever find out my lodging, though they often endeavoured to watch me to it. They all knew me by the name of Moll Flanders, though even some of them rather believed I was she than knew me to be so. My name was public among them indeed, but how to find me out they knew not, nor so much as how to guess at my quarters, whether they were at the east end of the town or the west, and this wariness was my safety upon all these occasions. I kept close a great while upon the occasion of this woman's disaster. I knew that if I should do anything this should miscarry, and should be carried to prison, she would be there and ready to witness against me, and perhaps save her life at my expense. I considered that I began to be very well known by name at the Old Bailey, 
though they did not know my face, and that if I should fall into their hands, I should be treated as an old offender. And for this reason, I was resolved to see what this poor creature's fate should be before I stirred abroad, though several times in her distress I conveyed money to her for her relief. At length she came to her trial. She pleaded she did not steal the thing, but that one Mrs. Flanders, as she heard her called, for she did not know her, gave the bundle to her after they came out of the shop, and bade her carry it home to her lodging. They asked her where this Mrs. Flanders was, but she could not produce her. Neither could she give the least account of me, and the mercer's men, swearing positively that she was in the shop when the goods were stolen, that they immediately missed them and pursued her, and found them upon her, thereupon the jury brought her in guilty. But the court, considering that she was really not the person that stole the goods, an inferior assistant, and that it was very possible she could not find out this Mrs. Flanders, meaning me, though it would save her life, which indeed was true. I say, considering all this, they allowed her to be transported, which was the utmost favour she could obtain, only that the court told her that if she could in the meantime produce the said Mrs. Flanders, they would intercede for her pardon. That is to say, if she could find me out and hand me, she should not be transported. This I took care to make impossible to her, and so she was shipped off in pursuance of her sentence a little while after. I must repeat it again that the fate of this poor woman troubled me exceedingly, and I began to be very pensive, knowing that I was really the instrument of her disaster. But the preservation of my own life, which was so evidently in danger, took off all my tenderness. And seeing that she was not put to death, I was very easy at her transportation, because she was then out of the way of doing me any mischief, whatever should happen. The disaster of this woman was some months before that of the last recited story and was indeed partly occasion of my governess proposing to dress me up in men's clothes, that I might go about unobserved, as indeed I did, but I was soon tired of that disguise, as I have said, for indeed it exposed me to too many difficulties. I was now easy as to all fear of witnesses against me, for all those that had either been concerned with me, or that knew me by the name of Maul Flanders, were either hanged or transported, and if I should have had the misfortune to be taken, I might call myself anything else, as well as Mal Flanders, and no old sins could be placed into my account. So I began to run a tick again with the more freedom, and several successful adventures I made, though not such as I had made before. We had at that time another fire happened not a great way off from the place where my governess lived, and I made an attempt there, as before, but as I was not soon enough before the crowd of people came in, and could not get to the house I aimed at, Instead of a prize, I got a mischief, which had almost put a period to my life and all my wicked doings together. For the fire being very furious, and the people in a great fright in removing their goods and throwing them out of windows, a wench from out of a window threw a feather bed just upon me. It is true, the bed being soft, it broke no bones, but as the weight was great, and made greater by the fall, it beat me down and laid me dead for a while. Nor did the people concern themselves much to deliver me from it, or to recover me at all. But I lay like one dead and neglected a good while, till somebody going to remove the bed out of the way helped me up. It was indeed a wonder the people in the house had not thrown other goods out after it, which might have fallen upon it, and then I had been inevitably killed. But I was reserved for further afflictions. This accident, however, spoiled my market for that time and I came home to my governess very much hurt and bruised, and frightened to the last degree 
and it was a good while before she could set me upon my feet again. It was now a merry time of the year, and Bartholomew Fair had begun. I had never made any walks that way, nor was the common part of the fair of much advantage to me, but I took a turn this year into the cloisters, and among the rest I fell into one of the raffling shops. It was a thing of no great consequence to me, nor did I expect to make much of it, but there came a gentleman extremely well-dressed and very rich, and as tis frequent to talk to everybody in those shops, he singled me out and was very particular with me. First, he told me he would put in for me to raffle, and did so, and some small matter coming to his lot, he presented it to me. I think it was a feather muff. Then he continued to keep talking to me with a more than common appearance of respect, but still very civil and much like a gentleman. He held me in talk so long, till at last he drew me out of the raffling place to the shop door, and then to walk in the cloister, still talking of a thousand things, cursorily without anything to the purpose. At last he told me that, without compliment, he was charmed with my company, and asked if I durst trust myself in a coach with him. He told me he was a man of honour, and would not offer anything to me unbecoming him as such. I seemed to decline it a while, but suffered myself to be importuned a little, and then yielded. I was at a loss in my thoughts to conclude at first what this gentleman designed, but I found afterwards he had had some drink in his head, and that he was not very unwilling to have some more. He carried me in the coach to the spring garden at Knightsbridge, where we walked in the gardens, and he treated me very handsomely, but I found he drank very freely. He pressed me also to drink, but I declined it. Hitherto he kept his word with me, and offered me nothing amiss. We came away in the coach again, and he brought me into the streets, and by this time it was near ten o'clock at night, and he stopped the coach at a house where, it seems, he was acquainted, and where they made no scruple to show us upstairs into a room with a bed in it. At first I seemed to be unwilling to go up, but after a few words I yielded to that too, being willing to see the end of it, and in hope to make something of it at last. As for the bed, etc., I was not much concerned about that part. Here he began to be a little freer with me than he had promised, and I, by little and little, yielded to everything, so that, in a word, he did what he pleased with me. I need say no more. All this while he drank freely, too, and about one in the morning we went into the coach again. The air and the shaking of the coach made the drink he had get more up in his head than it was before, and he grew uneasy in the coach, and was for acting over again what he had been doing before. But as I thought my game now secure, I resisted him, and brought him to be a little still, which had not lasted five minutes, but he fell fast asleep. I took this opportunity to search him to a nicety. I took a gold watch with a silk purse of gold his fine full-bottomed periwig and silver-fringed gloves, his sword and fine snuff-box, and gently opening the coach door, stood ready to jump out while the coach was going on, but the coach stopped in the narrow street beyond Temple Bar to let another coach pass. I got softly out, fastened the door again, and gave my gentleman and the coach the slip both together, and never heard more of them. This was an adventure indeed unlooked for, and perfectly undesigned by me though I was not so past the merry part of life as to forget how to behave when a fop so blinded by his appetite should not know an old woman from a young. 
I did not indeed look so old as I was by ten or twelve years. Yet I was not a young wench of seventeen, and it was easy enough to be distinguished. There is nothing so absurd, so surfeiting, so ridiculous as a man heated by wine in his head and wicked gusts in his inclination together. He is in the possession of two devils at once, and can no more govern himself by his reason than a mill can grind without water. His vice tramples upon all that was in him that had any good in it, if any such thing there was. Nay, his very sense is blinded by its own rage, and he acts absurdities even in his views, such as drinking more when he is drunk already, picking up a common woman without regard to what she is or who she is, whether sound or rotten, clean or unclean, whether ugly or handsome, whether old or young, and so blinded as not really to distinguish. Such a man is worse than a lunatic. Prompted by his vicious, corrupted head, he no more knows what he is doing than this wretch of mine knew when I picked his pocket of his watch and his purse of gold. These are the men of whom Solomon says, They go like ox to the slaughter, till a dart strikes through their liver. An admirable description, by the way, of the foul disease which is poisonous, deadly contagion mingling with the blood, whose centre or foundation is in the liver from whence, by the swift circulation of the whole mass, that dreadful nauseous plague strikes immediately through his liver, and his spirits are infected, his vitals stabbed through, as with a dart. It is true this poor unguarded wretch was in no danger from me, though I was greatly apprehensive at first of what danger I might be in from him. But he was really to be pitied in one respect, that he seemed to be a good sort of man in himself, a gentleman that had no harm in his design, a man of sense, and of fine behaviour, a comely, handsome person, a sober, solid countenance, a charming, beautiful face, and everything that could be agreeable, only had unhappily had some drink the night before, had not been in bed, as he told me when we were together, was hot, and his blood fired with wine, and in that condition his reason, as it were asleep, had given him up. As for me, my business was his money, and what I could make of him, and after that, if I could have found out any way to have done it, I would have sent him safe home to his house and to his family, for it was ten to one but he had an honest, virtuous wife and innocent children that were anxious for his safety, and would have been glad to have gotten him home and have taken care of him till he was restored to himself. And then with what shame and regret would he look back upon himself? How would he reproach himself with associating himself with a horror? Picked up in the worst of all holes, the cloister, among the dirt and filth of all the town. How would he be trembling for fear he had got the pox, for fear a dart had struck through his liver, and hate himself every time he looked back upon the madness and brutality of his debauch? How would he, if he had any principles of honour, as I verily believe he had? I say— how would he abhor the thought of giving any ill distemper, if he had it, as for aught he knew he might to his modest and virtuous wife, and thereby sowing the contagion in the lifeblood of his posterity? Would such gentlemen but consider the contemptible thoughts which the very women they are concerned with, in such cases as these, have of them, it would be a surfeit to them. As I said above, they value not the pleasure. They are raised by no inclination to the man. The passive jade thinks of no pleasure but the money, and when he is, as it were, drunk in the ecstasies of his wicked pleasure, her hands are in his pockets, searching for what she can find there, 
and of which he can no more be sensible in the moment of his folly than he can forethink of it when he goes about it. I knew a woman that was so dexterous with a fellow, who indeed deserved no better usage, that while he was busy with her another way, conveyed his purse with twenty guineas in it out of his fob-pocket, where he had put it for fear of her, and put another purse with gilded counters in it into the room of it. After she had done, he says to her, Now hadn't you picked my pocket? She jested with him, and told him she supposed he had not much to lose. He put his hand to his fob, and with his fingers felt that his purse was there, which fully satisfied him, and so she brought off his money. And this was a trade with her. She kept a sham gold watch, that is, a watch of silver gilt, and a purse of counters in her pocket, to be ready on all such occasions, and I doubt not practiced it with success. I came home with this last booty to my governess, and really, when I told her the story, it so affected her that she was hardly able to forbear tears, to know how such a gentleman ran a daily risk of being undone every time a glass of wine got into his head. But as to the purchase I got, and how entirely I stripped him, she told me it pleased her wonderfully. Nay, child, says she, the usage may, for aught I know, do more to reform him than all the sermons that ever he will hear in his life. And if the remainder of the story be true, so it did. I found the next day she was wonderful inquisitive about this gentleman. The description I had given her of him, his dress, his person, his face, everything concurred to make her think of a gentleman whose character she knew, and family, too. She mused a while, and I, going still on with the particulars, she starts up. Says she, I'll lay a hundred pounds I know the gentleman. I am sorry you do, says I, for I would not have him exposed on my account in the world. He has had injury enough already by me and I would not be instrumental to do him any more. No, no, says she, I will do him no injury, I assure you, but you may let me satisfy my curiosity a little, for if it is he, I warrant you I find it out. I was a little startled at that, and told her, with an apparent concern in my face, that by the same rule he might find me out, and then I was undone. She returned warmly, Why, do you think I will betray you, child? No, no, says she, not for all he is worth in the world. I have kept your counsel in worse things than these. Sure, you may trust me in this. So I said no more at that time. She laid her scheme another way, and without acquainting me of it, but she was resolved to find it out if possible. So she goes to a certain friend of hers who was acquainted in the family that she guessed at, and told her friend she had some extraordinary business with such a gentleman, who— by the way, was no less than a baronet, and of a very good family, and that she knew not how to come at him without somebody to introduce her. Her friend promised her very readily to do it, and accordingly goes to the house to see if the gentleman was in town. The next day she come to my governess and tells her that Sir was at home, but that he had met with a disaster and was very ill, and there was no speaking with him. What disaster? says my governess hastily, as if she was surprised at it. Why, says her friend, he had been at Hampstead to visit a gentleman of his acquaintance, and as he came back again, he was set upon and robbed, and having got a little drink too, as they suppose, the rogues abused him, and he's very ill. Robbed, says my governess. What did they take from him? Why, says her friend, they took his gold watch and his gold snuff-box, 
his fine periwig, and what money he had in his pocket, which was considerable, to be sure. For Sir never goes without a purse of guineas about him. Sure, says my old governess, jeering. I warrant you he has got drunk now and got a whore, and she has picked his pocket, and so he comes home to his wife and tells her he has been robbed. That's an old sham. A thousand such tricks are put upon the poor women every day. Fie, says her friend. I find you don't know, sir. Why, he is as civil a gentleman. There is not a finer man, nor a soberer, graver, modester person in the whole city. He abhors such things. There's nobody that knows him will think such a thing of him. Well, well, says my governess, that's none of my business. If it was, I warrant I should find there was something of that kind in it. Your modest men, in common opinion, are sometimes no better than other people, only they keep a better character, or, if you please, are the better hypocrites. No, no, says her friend, I can assure you, sir, is no hypocrite. He is really an honest, sober gentleman, and he has certainly been robbed. Nay, says my governess, it may be he has. It is no business of mine, I tell you. I only want to speak with him. My business is of another nature. But, says her friend, let your business be of what nature it will. You cannot see him yet, for he is not fit to be seen, for he is very ill and bruised very much. Ay, says my governess. Nay, then, he has fallen into bad hands, to be sure. And then she asked gravely, Pray, where is he bruised? Why, in the head, says her friend, and one of his hands, and his face, for they used him barbarously. Poor gentleman, says my governess, I must wait then till he recovers, and adds, I hope it will not be long, for I want very much to speak with him. Away she comes to me, and tells me the story. I have found out your fine gentleman, and a fine gentleman he was, says she. But mercy on him, he is in a sad pickle now. I wonder what the devil you have done to him, why you have almost killed him. I looked at her with disorder enough. I killed him, says I. You must mistake the person. I'm sure I did nothing to him. He was very well when I left him, said I, only drunk and fast asleep. I know nothing of that, says she, but he is in a sad pickle now. And so she told me all that her friend had said to her. Well then, says I, he fell into bad hands after I left him, for I'm sure I left him safe enough. About ten days after, or a little more, my governess goes again to her friend to introduce her to this gentleman. She had inquired other ways in the meantime and found that he was about again, if not abroad again, so she got leave to speak with him. She was a woman of admirable address, and wanted nobody to introduce her. She told her tale much better than I shall be able to tell it for her, for she was a mistress of her tongue, as I have said already. She told him that she came, through a stranger, with a single design of doing him a service, and he should find she had no other end in it, that as she came purely on so friendly an account, she begged promise from him, that if he did not accept what she should officiously propose, he would not take it ill that she had meddled with what was not her business. She assured him that as what she had to say was a secret that belonged to him only, so whether he accepted her offer or not, it should remain a secret to all the world, unless he exposed it himself. Nor should his refusing her service in it make her so little show her respect as to do him the least injury, so that he should be entirely at liberty to act as he thought fit. 
he looked very shy at first and said he knew nothing that related to him that required much secrecy that he had never done any man any wrong and cared not what anybody might say of him that it was no part of his character to be unjust to anybody nor could he imagine in what any man could render him any service but that if it was so disinterested a service as she said he could not take it ill from any one that they should endeavour to serve him and so as it were left her a liberty either to tell him or not to tell as she thought fit she found him so perfectly indifferent that she was almost afraid to enter into the point with him but however after some other circumlocutions she told him that by a strange and unaccountable accident she came to have a particular knowledge of the late unhappy adventure he had fallen into and that in such a manner that there was nobody in the world but herself and him that were acquainted with it no not the very person that was with him he looked a little angrily at first what adventure said he why said she of your being robbed coming from night hampstead sir i should say said she be not surprised sir says she that i am able to tell you every step you took that day from the cloister in smithfield to the spring garden at knightsbridge and thence to the in the strand and how you were left asleep in the coach afterwards i say let not this surprise you for sir i do not come to make a booty of you i ask nothing of you and i assure you the woman that was with you knows nothing who you are and never shall and yet perhaps i may serve you further still for i did not come barely to let you know that i was informed of these things as if i wanted a bribe to conceal them assure yourself sir said she that whatever you think fit to do or say to me it shall be all a secret as it is much as if i were in my grave he was astonished at her discourse and said gravely to her madam you are a stranger to me but it is very unfortunate that you should be let into the secret of the worst action of my life and a thing that i am so justly ashamed of that the only satisfaction of it to me was that i thought it was known only to god and my own conscience pray sir says she do not reckon the discovery of it to me to be any part of your misfortune it was a thing i believe you were surprised into and perhaps the woman used some art to prompt you to it however you will never find any just cause said she to repent that i came to hear of it nor can your own mouth be more silent in it than i have been and ever shall be well says he but let me do some justice to the woman too whoever she is i do assure you she prompted me to nothing she rather declined me it was all my own folly and madness that brought me into it all ay and brought her into it too i must give her her due so far as to what she took from me i could expect no less from her in the condition i was in and to this hour i do not know whether she robbed me or the coachman if she did it i forgive her and i think all gentlemen that do so should be used in the same manner but i am more concerned for some other things than i am for all that she took from me my governess now began to come into the whole matter and he opened himself freely to her first she said to him in answer to what he had said about me i am glad sir you are so just to the person that you were with i assure you she is a gentlewoman and no woman of the town and however you prevailed with her so far as you did i am sure tis not her practice you ran a great venture indeed sir but if that be any part of your care i am persuaded you may be perfectly easy for i dare assure you no man has touched her for you since her husband and he has been dead now almost eight years 
It appeared that this was his grievance, and that he was in a very great fright about it. However, when my governess said this to him, he appeared very well pleased, and said, Well, madam, to be plain with you, if I was satisfied of that, I should not so much value what I lost. For, as to that, the temptation was great, and perhaps she was poor and wanted it. If she had not been poor, sir, says my governess, I assure you she would never have yielded to you, and as her poverty first prevailed with her to let you do as you did, so the same poverty prevailed with her to pay herself at last, when she saw you were in such a condition, that if she had not done it, perhaps the next coachman might have done it. Well, says he, much good may it do her. I say again, all the gentlemen that do so ought to be used in the same manner, and then they would be cautious of themselves. I have no more concern about it, but on the score which you hinted at before, madam. Here he entered into some freedoms with her on the subject of what passed between us, which are not so proper for a woman to write, and the great terror that was upon his mind with relation to his wife, for fear he should have received any injury from me, and she communicated further and asked her at last if she could not procure him an opportunity to speak with me. My governess gave him further assurances of my being a woman clear from any such thing, and that he was as entirely safe in that respect as he was with his own lady. But as for seeing me, she said it might be of dangerous consequence, but, however, that she would talk with me and let him know my answer, using at the same time some arguments to persuade him not to desire it, and that it could be of no service to him seeing she hoped he had no desire to renew a correspondence with me, and that on my account it was a kind of putting my life in his hands. He told her he had a great desire to see me, that he would give her any assurances that were in his power not to take any advantages of me, and that in the first place he would give me a general release from all demands of any kind. She insisted how it might tend to a further divulging the secret, and might in the end be injurious to him, entreating him not to press for it, so at length he desisted. They had some discourse upon the subject of the things he had lost, and he seemed to be very desirous of his gold watch, and told her if she could procure that for him, he would willingly give as much for it as it was worth. She told him she would endeavor to procure it for him, and leave the valuing it to himself. Accordingly, the next day she carried the watch, and he gave her thirty guineas for it, which was more than I should have been able to make of it though it seems it cost much more. He spoke something of his periwig, which it seems cost him threescore guineas, and his snuff-box, and in a few days more she carried them too, which obliged him very much, and he gave her thirty more. The next day I sent him his fine sword and cane gratis, and demanding nothing of him, but I had no mind to see him, unless it had been so that he might be satisfied I knew who he was, which he was not willing to. Then he entered into a long talk with her of the manner how she came to know all this matter. She formed a long tale of that part, how she had it from one that I had told the whole story to, and that was to help me dispose of the goods, and this confidant brought the things to her, she being by profession a pawnbroker, and she, hearing of his worship's disaster, guessed at the thing in general, that having gotten the things into her hands, she had resolved to come and try as she had done. She then gave him repeated assurances that it would never go out of her mouth, and though she knew the woman very well, yet she had not let her know, meaning me, anything of it. That is to say, who the person was, which, by the way, was false, 
but however it was not to his damage for i never opened my mouth of it to anybody i had a great many thoughts in my head about seeing him again and was often sorry that i had refused it i was persuaded that if i had seen him and let him know that i knew him i should have made some advantage of him and perhaps have had some maintenance from him and though it was a life wicked enough yet it was not so full of danger as this i was engaged in however those thoughts wore off and i declined seeing him again for that time but my governess saw him often and he was very kind to her giving her something almost every time he saw her one time in particular she found him very merry and as she thought he had some wine in his head and he pressed her again very earnestly to let him see that woman that as he said had bewitched him so that night my governess who was from the beginning for my seeing him told him he was so desirous of it that she could almost yield to it if she could prevail upon me adding that if he would please to come to her house in the evening she would endeavour it upon his repeated assurances of forgetting what was past accordingly she came to me and told me all the discourse in short she soon biased me to consent in a case which i had some regret in my mind for declining before so i prepared to see him i dressed me to all the advantage possible i assure you and for the first time used a little art i say for the first time for i had never yielded to the baseness of paint before having always had vanity enough to believe i had no need of it at the hour appointed he came and as she observed before so it was plain still that he had been drinking though very far from what we call being in drink he appeared exceeding pleased to see me and entered into a long discourse with me upon the old affair i begged his pardon very often for my share of it protested i had not any such design when first i met him that i had not gone out with him but that i took him for a very civil gentleman and that he made me so many promises of offering no uncivility to me he alleged the wine he drank and that he scarce knew what he did and that if it had not been so i should never have let him take the freedom with me that he had done he protested to me that he never touched any woman but me since he was married to his wife and it was a surprise upon him complimented me upon being so particularly agreeable to him and the like and talked so much of that kind till i found he had talked himself almost into a temper to do the same thing over again but i took him up short i protested i had never suffered any man to touch me since my husband died which was near eight years he said he believed it to be so truly and added that madame had intimated as much to him and that it was his opinion of that part which made his desire to see me again and that since he had once broke in upon his virtue with me and found no ill consequences he could be safe in venturing there again and so in short it went on to what i expected and to what will not bear relating my old governess had foreseen it as well as i and therefore led him into a room which had not a bed in it and yet had a chamber within it which had a bed whither we withdrew for the rest of the night and in short after some time being together he went to bed and lay there all night i withdrew became again undressed in the morning before it was day and lay with him the rest of the time thus you see having committed a crime once is a sad handle to the committing of it again whereas all the regret and reflections wear off when the temptation renews itself had i not yielded to see him again the corrupt desire in him had worn off and tis very probable he had never fallen into it with anybody else as i really believed he had not done before when he went away i told him i hoped he was satisfied he had not been robbed again 
he told me he was satisfied in that point, and could trust me again, and putting his hand in his pocket, gave me five guineas, which was the first money I had gained in that way for many years. I had several visits of the like kind from him, but he never came into a settled way of maintenance, which was what I would have been best pleased with. Once, indeed, he asked me how I did to live. I answered him pretty quick, that I assured him I had never taken that course that I took with him, but that indeed I worked at my needle and could just maintain myself, that sometime it was as much as I was able to do, and I shifted hard enough. He seemed to reflect upon himself that he should be the first person to lead me into that, which he assured me he never intended to do himself, and it touched him a little. He said that he should be the cause of his own sin, and mine too. He would often make just reflections also upon the crime itself, and upon the particular circumstances of it with respect to himself, how wine introduced the inclinations, how the devil led him to the place, and found out an object to tempt him, and he made the moral always himself. When these thoughts were upon him, he would go away, and perhaps not come again in a month's time or longer. But then, as the serious part wore off, the lewd part would wear in, and then he came prepared for the wicked part. Thus we lived for some time. Thought he did not keep, as they call it, yet he never failed doing things that were handsome and sufficient to maintain me without working, and, which was better, without following my old trade. But this affair had its end too, for after about a year I found that he did not come so often as usual, and at last he left it off altogether without any dislike to bidding adieu, and so there was an end of that short scene in my life, which added no great store to me only to make more work for repentance. However, during this interval I confined myself pretty much at home. At least, being thus provided for, I made no adventures, no, not for a quarter of a year after he'd left me. But then, finding the fund fail, and being loath to spend upon the main stock, I began to think of my old trade, and to look abroad into the street again. And my first step was lucky enough. End of section 17